It was like a dream I couldn't escape. I wasn't a sailor. I was the librarian. But we all had to go to a loft, and I was next. I stepped up and pulled myself around the rail and grasped the cables. Welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where memoir writers and personal essayists read their true stories of personal daring, and then we talk about it. I am your host, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. What is the most dangerous thing you have ever done? That was the opening line from a TED Talk that my husband Phil and I watched last night while we were having our dinner. I had picked it because it was called What I Learned from Going Blind in Space with a Canadian astronaut named Chris Hadfield who had gone up in the space shuttle. Something I cannot imagine doing in about a million years. So... I've really been thinking about his question, and uh, I can't come up with too much. I think about how I drive on the highway. I know that that is technically kind of risky. I have driven through dense fog, and I've driven through intense accumulating snow on the highway. But I'm much more fearful about getting on an airplane than a car, even though statistically I know it is much safer. I am just afraid of so much, especially physically daring things. And my fear was actually something that motivated me to start this podcast so that I could listen to other writers talk about the brave things they have undertaken. Usually it's not the physically daring stuff, but today it is. And that made me realize just how much the physically daring stuff is, of course, linked to the emotional fears we have. I have zero desire to jump out of an airplane or climb a mountain or, God forbid, even crawl into the space shuttle after he described what it was like to have to get on your hands and knees to climb in and be on your back and then it starts vibrating. No, 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 no. But... Today, my guest is Elizabeth Garber. She is a writer and an acupuncturist in the great state of Maine. She might not have traveled into space, but she does have quite a tale of bravery and overcoming fear. So let's jump into it now. I will begin by introducing her with the title of her new memoir, Sailing at the Edge of Disaster. A Memoir of a Young Woman's Daring Year by Elizabeth Garber, who is my guest today on Daring to Tell. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here with me. Oh, this is so much fun for me, too. It's like after working so hard on a book, it's just a thrill to get to talk about it. And when it's such a crazy adventure, I love to hear how people respond. Well, I can't wait to talk about this with you today. There are so many places and things that I could jump in about this with you. But because this is mostly about writing, I'm wondering if you want to start off by talking about 
your writing story and journaling, which plays a really important role in the book that you wrote. And we'll hear some of that. But how did it start? What What's your writing origin story? Um, it was journaling. It was, I think, maybe the summer of fifth grade that I started a summer journal and wrote about my best friend and me camping out in a tent in the backyard and playing um, card games and sneaking into the house and having a watermelon. And what's, what I learned is that when I wrote things down like that, it anchors them in my memory and I will never forget that where if I hadn't written it down, it vanishes. Yeah. So every summer I would start a summer journal and it would last only so far. But by the time I was in high school, I am so thrilled I have what it was like as a 16 year old in 1968 about what I was thinking about. And I had an entry of, oh, we now use the word black instead of Negro. And that, that was a big deal. And it was like, oh, that's when it reached Southern Ohio. Right. Or when there was a big hurricane or a tornado or mm-hmm. the books I was reading and how I was beginning to respond to my parents. So by the time I left home at 17 to go to the ship, I felt like I was charged up and ready. I was a committed journal writer. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people on the ship who started out writing journals, and this was their first attempt. But I had been doing it for a while, so it was just part of who I was. Yeah. And I also had this, I remember the summer before, I was so afraid of my memory of things vanishing that I, I would start having a little piece of paper that I'd carry in my pocket where I jot things down that I didn't want to miss out on. Mm. And what was really cool, I was at my grandmother's farm and my great grandfather, Albert Hubbard was a writer at the turn of the century. And she said, that's just what my father would do. She said, we'd be out riding their horses and he would stop and jot down ideas on a piece of paper. So it was just this lovely sort of connection through time. So on the ship, I'd have paper with me and a pen in my pocket and I would just jot down to make sure I was trying to gather everything I could remember. Wow. And I think that's why the year is so well anchored in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much there I want to like go back and (laughs) revisit as you sort of ran through a a brief history of uh, your childhood and bringing up. But yeah, I so identify with that desire to put something down so that you can go back and anchor it in your mind. And I agree because I almost think that in writing things when you remember back, you remember what you wrote. You might not have the memory of the thing, but you remember what you wrote about it. And so it's that association with it. It's almost like memory plus because it's your input or your shading or whatever it is about it as well. Right. It's how it came through to you. Yeah. So it's perfect for a memoir writer. I think maybe memoir writers are tuned to that because we've already been writing. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's part of the filter that's somehow built in. Anyways, I I relate to that very much. So I was going to say, maybe, can you just let us know, where did you grow up? What are the basics of your upbringing? Who you were, who your family was before you got to the ship. So the the ship is the other huge character in this story, obviously. So I grew up in a a village of about 3,000 people outside of Cincinnati, and it was a village that was built in about the 1860s, the 1880s. It was all these old houses. And then 
when I was in seventh grade, we moved to the shell of a modern glass house that my father had designed and that we ended up spending years building. So I've written a memoir about that called Implosion, a memoir of an architect's daughter, about what it was like growing up with a radical modern architect in this old-fashioned village outside of Cincinnati, which was very, very modern. And a glass house. I just can't. I have to stop you and say, I mean, talk about a metaphor. What what was it like to to build? I mean, I realize that's your whole other yeah. first book, but that has got to be really impactful. And I think when you live in sort of a, a radical modern piece of architecture, it makes you self-conscious. Mm. So by the time I was a teen, I knew the designers of each piece of furniture. I knew the designers of our china or whatever. My father was so... He picked everything out and he talked about the designers. But I also had this eye for architecture because I had learned it from my dad. And then I had this eye of when you're in a house with two six feet long glass walls, it had stone on one end and the bedrooms were on the other end. But you're aware of you're reflected, you're reflected in mirror like surfaces. So it makes you strangely self-conscious and it actually is perfect for a writer because I was aware of watching us in the mirror. Mm. And it was like, we looked like we were on a set in a play or something. Wow. Yeah. I'm also very visual. So I had vivid visual memory. So one of the things that I learned in writing memoir was that I could re-enter memories, like re-enter memory of having dinner with my family. Mm. And it was like, The family was there, and I was almost watching me in my seat along with my brothers and my mom and dad, and I could walk around the room, and what were the books on the table, what was the music being played, what was being cooked in the kitchen, and it was just inquiring into this visual memory and seeing things that I might not have noticed or paid attention to them. Wow. And we had those old black and white photos, but I really literally could vision the space perfectly. Wow. That's, that's a huge gift. Yeah. Yeah. I'm both visual and I write. So yeah. Yeah. As an architect's daughter, you're trained to be very visual. Yeah. And it brings back to me one of the things that you mentioned about living in this glass house and the furniture. And it's interesting to me to hear also stone was involved. So there's glass and stone and these very hard surfaces and how your father was very strict in a lot of ways, but about like what furniture was the appropriate furniture to go in a house like this and how you didn't have warm, comfy couches for snuggling. No, we weren't allowed to have a couch. Yeah, that says a lot. And so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about your relationship with your father, which is a, a really important part of the story as well. And when you grow up with a man who chooses your mother's clothing and her earrings, wow. she wasn't allowed to choose her own clothes. So it's like because everything was an aesthetic event. Wow. But in a way, as the kids, I started sewing and making my own clothes. And I started sort of finding my own way separate from my dad. But it's a big thing to separate from a father who's so controlling. Yep. And how the sailing at the edge of disaster started it all started for our family is my dad came home from the office with this new york times article about this school on a ship and he informed my brother and me that we were going 
and that we just had to go and interview. But he had decided, he had figured it out, and there was no conversation. My mother didn't have a voice. She was scared and uncertain, but he would just announce things, and that was part of how our family ran. On the ship, I was absolutely astounded that some of the kids on the ship, they heard about it and they wanted to go, and I went, you could choose what you wanted to do. Yeah, It was just an astounding concept for me. Wow. And do you want to talk a little bit more about your relationship with your father? As a child, I had absolutely adored him. And I had adored learning about architecture and I sort of followed him around. And we were really great until we started building this house. And then whoever wasn't a super hard worker, he would start criticizing us relentlessly. So then it became a much more taught relationship and then things just went nuts when I had a boyfriend and so it was breaking away so there was always this push-pull between battling with him or trying to keep the peace or hoping that that wonderful fascinating charismatic dad I had had as a child would come back Mm -hmm. and for most of the rest of my dad's life I kept having this desire to reconnect with that amazing brilliant man and the desire for that and when he was so excited about the ship and we were on the ship and working on it I just kept hoping I would get my old dad back and because of that hope I invited him down to the ship to help work on the ship but my brother who's a realist at 15 said oh my god and just walked away like I was an idiot and of course it blew up but there was a good period of time first. There always was. And then when you're dealing with someone who's mentally ill, it's great. And then it builds up slowly into pressure and pressure and then an explosion. Yeah, I was going to say he was really, I mean, to say he was really controlling is putting it mildly. And you obviously write about this very beautifully and articulately in the book in the ways that he was so critical especially through the period when you were building this house together and he was having you guys work on it and you were the oldest and your brother Woody who was the other one assigned to go with you on this ship because your dad saw this article in the New York Times that was sort of this pivotal article that many parents had seen and decided to send their kids to this school on a ship and the ship now I don't know I'm not a huge sailing person, but see how I do with this. I'm going to, it's a four-masted, is it a four-masted schooner? Is that the name? It's a four-masted square-rigged bark. Four. So there are four, three masts that have square sails. Yeah. And then the fourth mast has what's called a gaff rig that sort of goes out straight in the back. So that's called a bark. Okay, bark. But it was 360 feet long. It was huge. Huge, huge, <laughs> huge ship. Huge. Longer than a football field. <laughs> and this reminds me, not the ship per se, but this whole movement, this let's have a school on a ship and we'll send these teens off to do all the work. I'm a little bit younger than you. And what I remember from the (laughs) 1970s were, um, I most remember the Wilderness family and Grizzly Adams and all these sort of back to the land movements and do things for yourself, sort of an anti-urban, anti-technological movement. And I sort of picture this in that sphere. And the way you describe it in the book is like, it was a bunch of hippie kids on a ship (laughs) 
trying to <laughs> learning how to run and work in fix a ship. Right. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. What we learned was pretty amazing. It really was. And but school, like real school, was supposed to be part of it. But of course the life lesson that came from putting this ship together I say putting it together. I mean it was a bit of a disaster. Everything about this was a bit of a disaster. <laughs> Very appropriately titled book here. So the ship was not in great shape. The kids were fixing it up for a while. Then there's there's a lot going on there. So you and your brother show up. I'm trying to get us set up for what you're going to read today. Um, the other person right. I think that we need to meet or have you introduce us to before we have you read is Kim, who was your roommate and friend on the ship. So maybe introduce us to her a little bit. Right. So the, the moment I met Kim, I had just walked on board the ship. I'm wearing a white linen jacket and short shorts that I had sewed myself. I had shaved my legs. I had nice sandals on. And this girl comes up the deck and she walks like she's just gotten off a horse and she's filthy and her hair is sort of stuck tight on her head. And she stops and goes, I know who you are. And then you're Elizabeth. And then she said, I've got to take a shit. It was like, I was absolutely astounded. It was like this loud New Jersey accent. It was like, and I had never heard anyone, let alone a girl, say anything like that. Yeah. So from the very beginning, she was completely shocking, amazing. She was larger than life. She was 16. She was one of the strongest personalities on the ship. In, some, in a lot of ways, her spirit really made the ship, the year on the ship happen. And she was brought on board to do that, to keep up the energy of the ship. So she was an extraordinary. She was like a truth speaker. She could see what was going on. My brother would see what was going on and see it through a negative slant. and But Kim would see things through a positive slant. And that negative and positive is something that I think is really interesting. Maybe we can talk more about that after, but yeah. Yes. So she is just like a firecracker and you guys are a little bit opposite. <laughs> Total opposite. Yeah. But we both write in journal. Yeah. You both journal. Yeah. That was one common denominator, but you were quiet. I don't want to say you were shy, but you were much more reserved and like right. to yourself. I would watch what was going on and she was out there wrestling with the boys. And it was also, it was 46 boys, seven girls, 10 teachers, and then crew members. So she was perfect and thrived in this very male atmosphere. So she loved to belt really loud. She was also very sweet with the younger boys, the 14 and 15 year olds, and she'd ruffle their hair. And if one of the girls was having a hard time, Kim would always be there comforting them. So she was out to get to know everybody on the ship and I was not, I was just observing. And that ties in with what this piece is that you asked me to read. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's anything else we need to really say before we have you read. Yeah, the girls' bunk rooms were in the old maid's quarters. The ship had been a luxury sailing yacht for Marjorie Merriweather Post's wealthy guests. So there was the crew quarters where the boys were and the girls were down in the maid's rooms at the stern of the ship. Wow. So that's where this scene takes place. So, Elizabeth, you're going to read two different sections. 
from part two of Sailing at the Edge of Disaster, which takes place in Miami in November of 1971, whenever you are ready. All right. As I brushed my teeth before going to sleep, Kim charged into our room and looked at me intensely. I felt caught like a deer in the headlights. She said, I've got to talk to you. It was always a bad sign when someone said this. You're making enemies. Enemies? How could I make enemies? Enemy was such an intense word. I didn't think I did anything wrong. Sure, I could get sarcastic sometimes, but underneath it, wasn't I really wimpy? When you tell people your impressions that you've written in your journal, you're playing games with people's heads. Oh, that. Oh, shit. I'd been worried about that. Kim and I were known as the girls who wrote in journals. We both planned to write what we thought about every kid on the ship, but Kim talked to people, worked and wrestled and raced with them. I watched everyone, but only talked to a few of them. But because I had a journal, students I never talked to came up to me when I was writing. One afternoon, the flirtatious girl from out west pushed her long blonde hair back with a flipping movement of her fingers. She asked, what are you writing about? She hung out with the older partying students. About the ship, I shrugged and trying to understand people. Did you write about me? She sounded coy. Well, I hedged. I write a little about everyone I can. People walked down the deck, glancing at us. I closed my journal. Would you let me see what you wrote about me? Are you sure you want to hear what I think? Of course. She smiled a winning grin. I flipped through the pages until I found her name. It's just what I think. I want to hear it. So I read, there's this girl with long blonde hair who flirts, really flirts with the boys, bats her eyelashes, flips her hair back, and laughs in a really silly way. She's like someone in a stupid teen movie. I wish she could just talk to them like a regular person. I stopped there and glanced up at her. Her face was cold. She stalked away and never talked to me the rest of the year. Oh, shit. I probably shouldn't have said stupid teen movie. Was I cruel to read what I'd written? Some journal writers hid things in code or wrote in tiny writing so they could tell the truth. I was determined to be as truthful as I could because I wrote for myself. But was I too critical? When people told me to do something, I was trained to be compliant. Why couldn't I say no? I vowed to myself, from now on, I'm not going to tell people what I thought. It was private. Right before dinner, as I wrote in my journal, an older guy sauntered up, one of the partying friends, with thick, matted, curly hair pulled back with a kerchief, an imposing, muscular chest. He demanded, so what have you written about me? I don't think I've written about you. I'm sure you have. He stood too close and looked down on my pages. So much for my resolve, I felt intimidated and flipped through the pages. Had I written about him? I found a single comment. Should I refuse? Or maybe it was a good thing to tell him what I thought. Served him right. I read, there's this guy who's mean to the little kids, the 14 and 15 year olds like Richie and Woody and his friend Jake. It makes them more negative and tougher. Not a good idea. He scowled. Those little shits are so annoying. I have to put them in their place. He stalked off and never spoke to me again either. No loss. But two out of 50 people mad at me? I didn't want this to get worse. After that, I was determined. I wouldn't read from my journal again to anybody. 
Then I forgot about it until Kim careened into our cabin talking about making enemies. I slumped onto my bunk and shoved the red leather journal under my pillow, the guilty object. I guessed that reading from my journal had been a really bad idea, even though Kim did it. I tried to defend myself, my voice shaking, but don't people want to know what they're doing? You're playing games with people's heads. She stared at me. Then she pulled out her journal from under her pillow, plopped down on her bunk and hunted through the pages, and then she read. Elizabeth is telling people what she sees on the surface, but she hasn't delved into who they really are. She isn't getting to know them. She doesn't understand why they act like a jerk. She looked at me clearly disappointed. She was two years younger than me, but I felt like the younger, clueless one. I'd assumed that I was somehow wiser, that my journal writing was better, more descriptive, and telling the story while she poured out waves of feelings. But I was impressed that she had used the word delve. The message of her words hit me. I lay down on the bunk and stared at the ceiling. Why didn't I want to get to know people? My mom raised me to be critical of other people. We lived in a wealthy old village, but we were the odd people who raised our own food and made our own clothes. Mom and I made sarcastic comments about country club ladies in their matching sweater sets and A-line skirts and the men in bright yellow or green pants. We made our clothes because we couldn't afford to buy new stuff and because clothes were a badge of being different. Even though we lived in a modern glass house and dad drove a Jag and a BMW, he kept mom on a really tight budget to pay all the bills. I spent my babysitting cash on patterns, fabric, and thread. At school, my best friend and I shared a secret language of eye rolls and raised eyebrows. In our eyes, most people missed the mark. I wondered if anyone was good enough for me. After Kim confronted me, I worried. Was I really a mean person? My eyes stung with tears. Then a thought hit me like a kick in the stomach. What if the most important thing to do at this crazy school was make friends? Kim sat up, her finger holding a spot in her journal. I faced her, feeling hangdog sad and scared. She narrowed her eyes and studied me before she read again. The thing is, what she's saying is right. And then she emphasized, a lot. She paused. I held my breath. She read the words slowly like she was talking to my heart but it doesn't do them any good until you get to know them and care about them. Only then will they hear you. I was blown away. It didn't matter that the words accurately described what was wrong with me. Kim had written the coolest thing about me. The words sank in. I had to get to know people. I had to care about people. It would take me years to realize how profoundly this early habit of being critical kept me closed off from caring about other people, kept me separate and isolated. I'd been fighting to survive for so long, fighting my dad. I'd worked so hard to understand life, read important books, remember my dreams, and write. I was always trying to keep up, always behind in my expectations of myself. I'd looked at people to analyze and judge who might be a smart, interesting friend, but I hadn't really thought about caring for other people. I thought about how Kim walked around ruffling the heads of the little boys. She cared about them. Or how she'd comfort the girl who was crying the other night. Could I do that? 
I looked over at Kim and she smiled and pushed her curls behind her ears. The tension in my chest released. She didn't think I was a terrible person. Kim playfully kicked at my foot and I pretended to wrestle back with my foot. I was flooded with relief. We cracked open our journals and wrote furiously. So the next section you asked me to read was one of the scariest events of my life, which was climbing up in the rigging. And I wrote it first in a class. And by the end of it, I was just shaking. Um, so sometimes emotion comes up when I read this because it, it was intense. I'd known it was coming. We were to begin our sail training. Everyone, students, teachers, and crew had to climb up and over the second platform on the fore and main masts. The new rigging was complete now all the way to the top, even though we were only climbing about halfway. It had been crazy watching people work up that high. Some students worked in the rig for weeks, cutting out rotten rungs and replacing them with freshly spliced ratlins, lashing them securely to the cables or shrouds, which reached from the deck to the masts high above. These students leaned against the shroud, secure despite the wind and the gentle rocking of the ship. Kim had finally been accepted as a rigger, and she loved it up there. Her hands grew tough and calloused and smelled smoky from the waxy lashing line. When the day's work was done, a few riggers climbed even higher, compelled to touch their hand to the cap on top of the main mast called the truck, 180 feet above the water. I was not around when my brother stationed a friend on deck to take photographs of him as he climbed to the top. He found me later when I was writing in my journal in one of my hiding places. He punched my arm. Hey, I did it. When I looked confused, he was sarcastic. Oh, so sorry to interrupt you, but I slid down the royal backstay. I still looked confused and he rolled his eyes. Follow me. I have to show you. He took me to the base of the main mast. You do know that there are metal stays that keep the mast steady? I shrugged. Sure, I sort of knew that. He pointed out a series of heavy metal cables painted with white lead paint that sloped forward at mile downward angle from the mast towering over us. So which one did you come down? He pointed to a cable that attached to the very top of the mast and came down behind it at a steep angle all the way down to the deck. I couldn't believe I'd never seen it before. Holy shit, Woody, you came down that? Yep, I did it. He drawled just like they did in the Hornblower books. He rubbed his hands but grimaced. I had my hands on the cable to lower myself down slowly, but my hands heated up. He'd crossed his ankles around the cable, but he didn't want to hold on too tight and scar them. I was going too fast and had to grab the metal with my thighs to slow down and the cable burned a hole in my favorite shorts, but I made it. I stared at him and up at the cable. He glanced around before he leaned in closer. Mr. Nielsen, he was our Danish first mate, met me on the deck at the bottom of the cable. He must have seen me from the bridge and flew down here. He said, we are never going to do that again. Was he mad at you? I didn't want Mr. Nielsen mad at me. He wasn't the captain. We still didn't have one, but he was the highest ranking officer. I adored him, but also stayed out of his way, keeping a low profile. 
No, Mr. Nielsen was very serious, and he spoke to me sailor to sailor. That's why I know I'll never do it again. I've learned. Of course, I'd studied the charts of the masts, the yards, and the sails to learn their names. I loved saying the nautical terms to gallant and flying skysails were my favorite. They sounded so literary, right out of Moby Dick. But I'd never gotten straight about all the lines that came down to the railing on the ship, which controlled the raising and lowering of the sails or moved the yard arms sideways to catch a better wind. I was ready to join a line of students to pull any rope they told me from the safety of the deck, but I certainly was in no hurry to climb. But the day came when Chief Mate Nielsen had one of his young Danish mates blow the silver whistle and we lined up on deck. We were divided into groups of students and teachers and crew assigned to one of the two forward masts. I was in the group assigned to the main mast. Our rigger, a young guy with blonde hair that fell in his face, reviewed how to climb, where to grasp, how to look up. He said, if you're scared, don't look down. I drifted to the end of the line so I could watch. One by one, students mounted the starboard rail, grabbed the shrouds, and climbed in a long angle until they reached the first platform. Then they kept going, this time straight up, climbing the ratlins parallel to the mast up to the second platform. Then they clambered onto the second platform, moved carefully around to the other side and descended back to the first platform and then down to the railing where they jumped down onto the deck. It didn't look impossible. In the future, we would move out onto the yard arms and eventually bend on the sails. It was one thing to watch them climb, but another thing to realize I was going to the second platform. My hands shook. I was lightheaded. I can't do this. But the line was moving forward Fewer and fewer students were still on deck, while the early climbers had returned to the deck already. I stood at the end of the line, inched towards the railing, only a few students ahead of me. My hands were numb and cold as I stepped forward. Two students were ahead of me. One climbed up and over the rail. The rigger gave him a hand, making sure his feet were secure before he commenced to climb. It was like a dream I couldn't escape. I wasn't a sailor, I was the librarian, but we all had to go to a loft and I was next. I stepped up and pulled myself around the rail and grasped the cables. The rigger said, enjoy the climb, I'm following you. The metal rung dug across the width of my sneakered feet. Glancing up to the web of lines, I panted. My hands shook, but I grabbed on and climbed, trembling as I mounted the long triangle. I made it to the first platform. I sat on the metal platform, bolted to the mast, and took a big breath. I'd made it this far, but I was too afraid to look around. The rigger said, good job. Time to keep going. I'll be right behind you. I put my foot in the first rung and then the next, climbing the straight ladder of ropes parallel with the massive main mast. These rungs were short and sagged a little with each step. My weight was held by lines that I might have spliced and that others had lashed into place. I chanted aloud to myself, I can do this, I can do this. I climbed steadily until the second platform. A crewman above leaned over the edge and gave directions. Reach up your hands one at a time, hold on to these shrouds and pull yourself up onto the platform. That's when I realized I had to lean my whole body out over wide open empty space, holding on only with my hands. 
I froze and whimpered, I can't do this. The rigor on the rungs below me called up, you okay? Climb up and over, you can do it. I cried, I can't. No one could save me. My dad's words pummeled me, you're weak. The crew member above looked down over the platform and asked pleasantly, want a hand up? I looked up at his weathered face and my voice shook, I can't do this. He reached out his hand and said, put your hand right here, with such certainty that my hand rose and grasped on. His strong, warm voice compelled my other hand to reach for the next handhold. His voice willed me upward. The rigor below guided my feet to each new foothold until I pulled myself up onto the second platform over 100 feet above the deck. I clamped my arms around the mast, sickened by its slow sway. I couldn't stop shaking. I was convinced I couldn't get down, that no one could save me. My dad's voice was relentless. You never learn to work, his voice ripped into me. You don't apply yourself. I glanced up at the kind crewman who was staying with me. He talked to me gently, but I could hardly hear what he said. My breathing was tight. My frantic thoughts quieted to despair. They conferred about me. The older man promised me that the two of them would stay with me until I was ready to descend. I glanced down. Students on the deck moved toward the foredeck for dinner. Late afternoon light over the harbor turned pink, then lavender out over the sea, a winter sunset. I breathed more fully. We'll get you down safely, they promised. They sounded so calm but fear choked me. It was impossible for me to get over that platform. The kind man reassured me, one of us will climb down ahead of you and one of us after you. We will guide your hands and feet. We are right here. Trembling, I peeled my hands off the mast to stand. I grasped onto the metal shrouds. My mind said, I can't, I can't. But I was supported by these two crewmen who contained my fear with their certainty. One said, I'm going down ahead of you. The other said, I will follow you. They were so kind to me. I extended my foot over the void. Nothing except 100 feet of air under my foot. Then a hand guided my foot to a rung and held my foot there. I sent my other foot down over the void, but my hands were screaming. I can't hold on. I can't do this. I'm weak. But the kind man's voice said, I'm holding your hands. I will guide them to the next handhold. My body shook, but he guided me. I went down rung by rung, holding on to the metal shrouds, one man above and one below. I descended until I reached the first platform. I stood there and my legs shook a little, but I breathed and then I kept going down from the first platform. On the ladder of metal bars, I was closer and closer to the deck with every step. The rigor moved ahead and I climbed the rest of the way on my own. When I finally reached the deck, my legs wobbled and I leaned on the railing. Almost no one was on the deck except my brother. He walked up to me and said, you okay? I said, did you see me up there? He nodded. He'd waited the whole time for me. And then he turned and left. 
The older crewman climbed down on the deck and patted me on the back. Good job. Get some dinner. You'll feel better. I slipped into the crew mess, ladled a bowl of stew, and slid onto a bench. No one had noticed I was missing. A celebratory high energy was spinning through everyone. They were talking all about sail training exercises and learning to walk out on the yard arms. They were miming how to reach down over the yards to hold up a sail. One boy said, you're standing on a cable that's moving back and forth out at sea and you have to reach over a yard arm and clutch the sail. Yeah, sure. Another kid said, they say one hand for the ship and one hand for yourself, but if you need both hands for the sail, what happens to you? Everyone thought this was so funny. The teacher, Ron, talked about his fear of heights. I'm the only one who seized up. Mr. Nielsen called to me, come down slowly and don't shit on the deck. Everyone was laughing. I'd never felt so invisible. No one seemed to have noticed what I'd experienced except my brother. I scanned the room until I saw him. He gave me a thumbs up like he was proud of me. I left quickly and hurried down the deck without looking up into the masts and rig hovering overhead. I felt such relief going below, closing the metal door, lying on my bunk in the silent girls' quarters. I didn't even write in my journal. I fell deeply asleep. We did it. We went up and over. Elizabeth, I cannot thank you enough. First of all, for reading this here, I mean, I, I feel that. I felt that. Um, the fear to do what you did, I I still can't believe that. <laughs> I mean, you did it. You did it. I did it. And I will say, I read out loud when I am getting ready, and I couldn't get through that without crying. I mean, it was... Wow. It, you really capture it. You capture it so beautifully. And, um, yeah, the kindness of those men above you and below you who said, we're here, we're going to guide your feet and your hands oh. and we're going to get you down. I very much related to feeling the generosity from people that was missing. Yeah before you had felt that before and just how important that was. And, uh, yeah, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary book. Thank you so much. Cause I write something and you don't know someone else will respond and that you were moved to tears. Oh my God. It means so much to me. Yeah. I, I read it again and again and I, I, I did, I wept at the generosity because sometimes when we have these negative things in our head that give us this message, you can't do this. Right. You, you're never gonna. So thank you, because the other thing that you are so brave in writing and sharing with everyone who is interested in, in getting that connection, I'll say, is the bravery of really revealing yourself to us and that is huge mm. and I'll say what I loved most probably about five mm. different things about this book because <laughs> I loved so much about it but one of the many things that I loved most about it was both the journal section that you read and the rigging had that vulnerability of you 
being completely disrobed, if you will, or, you know, you showed this very, um, I'll say naive self, um, and you were brave in just being you before we learn how to do all these protective things. And that in both cases, first with Kim and then with these rigors, you had people who showed you such kindness and to be modeled kindness is to see that it's possible for us to then extend that. So yes, that was my response about the, the vulnerability. I guess that, what was it like to receive that kindness in that moment? I mean, I think obviously you got back on the deck getting back to the rigging and you were like, whoa like I mean I cannot I, I feel like I would have burst into tears there and not stood up again for like two days but how did you I mean you went down to the mess and then you had that very disconcerting experience of feeling disconnected right what's amazing is there was this accumulative strengthening of our bodies and our spirits that happened on the ship so I remember right before we left I climbed up and over the second platform and I went, that was no big deal. Mm. But I went back and I found in a letter home, even when we were sailing and tying on the, the sails, I was up and I was out on a yard arm. I had forgotten I had been out there. Wow. But that I got brave enough to go out on a yard arm and pull up sails. Wow. What's also wild is now when people work on this ship's They've got safety harnesses. They're hooked on. If they fell, they would be. Yeah. We had nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that That's the other thing about your whole experience, which, again, feels very emblematic of a an innocent time as well. Like, oh, these kids will let them go do stuff. Like, I, I can't imagine how many times everyone would have been sued, <laughs> you know, over I know. everything. And that none of us died. Yeah. I mean, that was really lucky. When I found 12 of the students that I went to the school with and I created a private Facebook page where I could ask questions and people would have discussions and people would share photographs. And when I put out the title of the book was Sailing at the Edge of Disaster, someone said, what do you mean disaster? I never felt like anything was bad or wrong. I was like, read it as an adult. What we went through as kids and that we normalized and kids feel immortal. Like my brother going down on this cable, 180 feet and kids going out, you know, and we hitchhiked all over Mexico and we were in storms at sea and there was a hole in the ship and water was pouring in and the kids plugged it. And he said, I don't remember anything being dangerous. (laughs) The description of that, um, I, was it a refrigerator or some kind of tank that they had to get in to seal it and they would get inside and work? With oh, the- right. Cleaning the fresh water tank. Yes. When I was on the ship now, I talked to one of the officers. No one would go down inside this water tank where it was pitch dark without all the safety equipment on their shoulder, ready to report if there was gases present or whatever. And they'd have a walkie talkie and yeah. they had sent you know, the littler kids down because it was so hard to get in and out of it because it was right. so small, right? Right, right? And so hot. And then people would start to faint and they'd push them out so they didn't faint and they'd drink water and then they'd go back down in it. It was crazy dangerous. Yes, yes. And everyone remembers that it's just amazing. Right. 
Well, and again, it sort of speaks to this more innocent time, but also fear, how fear becomes a thing. You know, we don't have fear before we think about all these terrible things that could happen, but the fear, once you do start thinking about them, and it is, this was a time when all this fear started kicking in. So the bravery of your tale, there is so much more in this book, I think, that people will have to pick their jaws up off the floor. (laughs) Um, So another larger, I'll call it a paradox. And I don't know exactly what I mean by this. I'll do my best to try and explain it, but it, it does have to do with the danger of the situation that you were in. The really difficult, abusive relationship that you had with your dad right before you left and that he forced you to go on this ship. Now, you and your brother were happy to leave. I mean, you were chomping at the bit and you were like, we we can't stay home. Yeah. So it was a really twisted kind of circumstance where your father's forcing you out of the house. He had He had forbidden you from going to college because he thought you weren't mature enough and said, this'll teach you how to do hard work and go do this ship and you're going to be the librarian on the ship and your brother's going to learn these things. So you were both happy, but also sort of forced into that. Like what, what was your emotional response to going into that before this push and pull of out of the nest yet? Um, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I remember that first night going, to be sent to sea. I'd only seen the ocean once before when I was a little kid. I had been knocked over in the waves. It was like the ocean was this strange concept I had no idea about, and let alone a ship. And I thought, I never thought about going to sea or living on a ship. And But what was great is that I was then went to New York and was the assistant, the director of the school. And that was actually, per- that was like my idea of a great time. I was in New York City. I had to wear cool clothes. I was just hurt adoring assistant to this very charismatic woman. So it was like, cool. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to the ship. It was still like this strange concept. And then I got there and it took a while to transition into being there. But once I bonded to it, I was bonded to it. And there was a way, because life was so intense on the ship, we bonded to each other in such a way that my deepest, oldest friends are still friends from the ship. Yeah. And I just heard from one of them who lives in Denmark, and she said, I still don't have friends the way I had friends from that year because we lived together and we were at such, we were at life and death. We were just, but we also had so much fun with each other and we relied on each other. Mm -hmm. It's an astounding way to become really deeply connected to people. Yeah. And they're lifelong friends. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the, irony in a funny way is it worked so it worked (laughs) I don't want to say your father was right but you know what I mean it's one of those things where you go well this it happened right we could have died we could have died we could have sunk sea we could have we could have been decapitated we could have I know been smashed to bits on the deck it worked and because of my dad I never would have gone but because he sent me and then I had this incredible story to write. And yeah. it's like, because of my dad, I got to learn all about modern architecture. And I had another story to write. Yeah. And because I lived around someone who was bipolar and 
difficult. It really strengthened my ability to be around people struggling from a lot of a lot of suffering. And that I feel like that was a real grounding to my acupuncture practice that I can be present to people who mm. really suffered and struggled a lot, and I can hear what other people find is too overwhelming. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all of it, even though it was a lot of hard work. Yeah. It just seemed so apparent to me that in spite of so much difficulty, that it was maybe equal weight gift in response. And because of what you said, there was so much kindness and so much support, where if it had been bullying leadership, it could have been so abusive and so harmful. Yeah. Yeah. So... I feel very fortunate. So tell me a little bit about the acupuncture part. How did you come to that in in your life? Because I was going to say exactly that. Like you, you have taken that generosity and turned it around many times over. I know. What I learned from Kim about that I had to get to know people and I had to really care about people. So I had thought I was going to be a professor. I had studied, I went to college and was studying classics, except my dyslexia caught up with me and I couldn't learn Greek and German and Old Norse, which I wanted to learn. So I had to regroup. And I ended up, after I graduated from college, I ended up being a carpenter for a few years and I wore myself out. And because I wore myself out, a friend of mine said, oh, you should try acupuncture. It'll help you get stronger. And also I had been low level depressed after I left the show, or from my teens. Mm-hmm. And it just changed my life in a way like the ship did. It was this hugely transformative experience. Within two months, I came out of a nine-year depression. And it was life-changing. And I thought, this is the most important experience I've had to come out of this depression. If I could do anything for other people, it would be to help them come out of the experience of depression. Because I realized I had learned from my dad. I was always trying to save him and help him. And he was suicidal off and on for my teens and for the rest of his life. And so I think that heightened my awareness of people's suffering. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see what I could do to help people suffering. That that was more important than teaching Greek classics. Yeah, yeah. Well, and for me... You loved writing. And I loved writing. And you loved reading. So that was a big part of it. I don't think we talked too much before about how you were the librarian for the ship. That was your role. Right. In in getting there. So you weren't really one of the sailing students per se. And an amazing the other thing happened with acupuncture, which was that I started after I started getting treated. I started writing. It just spontaneously happened. I started writing poetry. Mm. I started observing things very closely and writing poems. And I wrote poems steadily the next 25 years until I ended up switching to memoir. So it, the acupuncture opened up a creative channel. Mm. And I often see this with patients when they emerge from depression or being stuck. The way I can tell they're really getting better is they become creative. And I encourage it and nurture it the way so many people help nurture and encourage my writing. And that's, and you need someone up on the, you know, up in the rigging with you saying, I'll help you. Yeah. And that's what I do to other people. Put your foot here. Yeah, put your foot here. You can do it. Get a notebook. Oh, it just, yeah. oh, it's so heartening. 
So have you been waiting your whole entire life to write this book? Yeah. <laughs> I found in my notes, I found that um, the summer after I got home from the ship, I knew I'd made a photo album and put everything together. And I'd been saving all this. But I found this letter to my grandmother from a year or two later that I was planning to write the book about the ship. And she said, well, it really seems clear that the plot of the book is the story of the, the journey of the ship. It was so cool that we were talking about it then. Ah. But in a way, I had to learn how to write and I had to learn how to put things together. And I really feel it's important with memoir to really have years between you so that you can really reflect yeah. and look at the bigger picture. And I think that, yeah. And then I, that I found my close classmates and got their reflections over time too. I got incredible stories from other classmates of stories they had never told people. And there was a lot of things I couldn't put in here. It would have taken us off in other directions, but, <laughs> and talking to people on the phone, talking to people who are in the book, I finally was mature enough in myself and confident enough in myself and not so shy and withheld that I felt like I really fully became friends with some of the kids that I didn't know as well. Mm. And that that has been such a beautiful part of the process. That's, that's amazing. Cause I was also wondering, so you're kind of doing now a little bit what you did in that sample you read of the journal, like here's what these people were like. And now right. you're doing it again. <laughs> I'm doing it again. <laughs> But with, but now you have taken the time to tussle people's hair. Oh, I care about them. <laughs> and that's the other thing about Kim. What an amazing human being. I mean, I was really struck by her presence and her, her wisdom at 16. Such wisdom at 16. Just amazing. Yeah. And she's still gutsy and so smart. And she now works as a therapist in England, works with young women who've been abused or raped. And she's just a committed therapist I was gonna say, after she'd done many other things in her life. Yeah, she did a lot of other things. But when I had read at the end that she was a therapist, I thought, oh, that's so good. <laughs> she's, she's putting that wisdom and, yeah. and generosity and empathy to use. Yeah. Um, okay, well, my, my classic question, I can't let you off the hook before I ask you, what was most daring to write about this book? Um, going up and over the rigging. And then at the end of the book, there's a scene with my dad that I had written about for my, in my first book, but I knew I had to write it differently. And I'm not going to say it's the crescendo of the book. And I had to step back into that scene and see it differently writing from this teenager point of view in a way I hadn't on implosion. Yeah. Uh, that took a long time to get back to. Yeah. Some things were utterly fun to write about in this book. Which were those? Oh, um, I wrote a thing about skin, about describing all these dirty boys. <laughs> all these, oh, yes. You know, their skin, and they were tanned, and they were sunburned, and they had scars and scratches. But I hadn't ever thought of it that clearly, that we were surrounded by all these boys that had no shirts on and had 
torn up ripped jeans that were too revealing and and then they were watching these seven girls <laughs> yeah and just the sort of the intensity of it. I was like you poor seven girl I mean I say poor it was right. it seems like it all worked out okay considering I'll just say that much there's there's yeah. certainly sexual coming of age is also a theme in this book too so right yeah and there was so much that I didn't know about what was going on with the other girls. But in a way, because there were so few girls, yeah. it was like each girl had their circle of boys they were friends with. <laughs> right. But then Kim and I were like the essential friends. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Are there people out there that are not excited that this book is coming out? That's an interesting question. Um um, there was someone I had an affair with on the ship and I didn't use their name. And I, and we actually had a pretty powerful conversation about how it didn't work. You know, 50 years later, you rarely get to talk to someone you had a brief affair with. And we actually had a transformative conversation about mm. what the experience was like for him. He thought it was a great experience, but he didn't remember it very vividly. He said, what exactly did happen? And I said, well, I wrote about it and I sent it to him and um, said, oh, I'm really sorry. Yeah, that was really great. Mm. But he said, what's great is that we ended up being friends and not having a big deal about it. I go, I know that's mm. pretty amazing. So we, it, yeah. it was like sort of clearing a little thing. And I learned that was the final moment where I finally learned I needed to say no to sex until I was ready have sex and yeah what girl hasn't needed to learn that yeah. and yeah. um and i realized that was one of the really big learnings in the ship uh, in the book it's the power of being able to say no yeah and wait absolutely i know and how that lesson will revisit us again and again, and again right. we learn it like anything else in life i suppose right yeah this has been so much fun <laughs> i I have loved this conversation. And I'll also say, I feel like there's a lot of other things I'm not going to ask you about because there are a lot of things in here that people definitely need to read. And we we have not spoiled anything, I just yes. want to say, but I don't think, right? Okay. Right. There's lots more to read in this book. But generosity, generosity, generosity. That is my word for this and how you found it and how you're giving it. It's really, it's really something. Oh, I have one other little question. Why, why do we read memoir? I'm a huge, I go for memoirs and I know why I read memoir, but do you gravitate to memoir too? Or what is it about the genre? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, um, when I wrote poetry, I read tons of poetry. Now I don't read poetry for the most part. Mm -hmm. And then when I've been actively writing memoir, I read it because I there's a part of me that goes, I don't want to read a story someone made up. I want to read what people really live through and how they write about it. Bingo. But my next project is I'm going to take a true story and write it as a novel. So now I'm back to reading novels again. Oh. And I love novels. <laughs> That's great. So part of it is reading the craft, but also how people create stories that isn't exactly how it happened. I can see that. But on this, I just loved, I loved how following what actually happened is such an astonishing story yeah. that real life is pretty amazing. It really is. I, I could not agree more. And 
in the writing that I've done, I do find that like, it's sort of like um, magnetism. There's sometimes there's like that push away, like, but if you can flip it and get to the point where it's attracting instead of repelling. Yeah. There's something there. Yeah. It's a magical process. I think when you write a scene in memoir of something really pivotal that happened in your life, you discover things you didn't know back then that are important still to learn from it. And it's, it transforms both you and having written it, it transforms the reader. And I just think that's part of the potency of memoir. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been a huge joy and uh, just so fulfilling to talk with you and hear your story. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. This was what a beautiful way to spend an afternoon. (laughs) All right. Well, that was Elizabeth Garber. I hope you love her as much as I do. Her book is truly fantastic and I'll also tease for you uh, another thing about the ship which is that they become this ship becomes the subject of an international political event plus there's a whole family aspect that plays out and this is a brand new memoir coming out just later this month September of 2022 I will put links in the show notes for her for her book for everything that you might be interested in about it and I do get what she's saying now about turning a true story into a fictional one and the idea of moving into fiction after writing two memoirs in fact it sounds intriguing and I totally get it but at this moment in time for me I am in full-on memoir mode and I totally relate when she said Why listen to a story if it's not true? I want to know what really happened to people. And I feel like it's a great way to meet new friends through the page and sometimes through the headphones as well. One thing I realized that Elizabeth's story had reminded me of when she was saying about her hands going numb before she climbed the rigging was a time when I was on a flight from Boston to L.A. and... As we were coming in to land, the pilot had said, we're going to have to be flying through some thunderclouds, so it's going to be a little rough. Well, that was the most terrifying turbulence I have ever been in in my life. And before that point, I kind of thought turbulence was like a little rumble in your seat. No, not at all. The plane was going up, down, sideways, every which way. It was so scary that my hands went numb and my face went numb and I was so scared. I am embarrassed to admit now I called the flight attendant with the button. God bless her. She came over and brought me some ice, asked if I was all right. Um, It was probably horribly dangerous for her to be out of her seat in that circumstance, but she looked after me and not only did I think we were going to die, I wanted to die. It was so, so terrible. That experience, as I think about it, actually made me um, pretty darn terrified to fly in the future. So that never helped me in terms of wanting to be brave. 
But I was thinking about this more, and then I remembered another time I was flying when, again, the pilot comes on, which now I'm so much more, like, heightened attention to, and said, we're going to be going through some rough air, but I want you to picture yourself like you're on a big old school bus that is bouncing down a dirt road. And it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but it's perfectly safe. That made all the difference to me in how I think about it, how I approach turbulence, even though I still don't love flying. But um, I think it's that little thread of hope that we get in these very terrifying and pivotal moments for ourselves. The... Um, the voice telling us it's going to be okay, the image of a hand guiding our foot to the next rung is the kind of kindness that we never, ever forget. So when I think of what do I do that's brave, and it doesn't feel like very much, honestly, but the other brave thing I think I do is this podcast. <laughs> So I hope it is helpful for you in that way. These kinds of things are what I muse over in my newsletter. It's called Hit Pause. So if you'd like to sign up for that, they're a little more well thought out than what I just told you. But uh, you can sign up for it at my website, michellerado.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. I recently tweeted out a 14-day transformation of a monarch caterpillar into a first flight of the butterfly that emerged it was unbelievable and that has had me thinking a lot and and has been a really amazing sort of uh, writing prompt for me so I'm gonna continue musing about that so who knows when I will actually feel like putting something out about that but it will certainly be in the works on Twitter I met Michelle Rado as well thank you so much to my dear musical husband Phil Rado for my theme song so appropriately titled especially for this month Make Me Brave so I think I will leave a little more of it this time to play out for you but most of all thank you for daring to listen I hope you will catch another episode again next month I keep climbing mountains reaching for the boundless spaces I keep watching my back on my left and my right And nothing's gonna make me brave Nothing's gonna make me brave Nothing's gonna make me brave Except doing what makes me scared And nothing's gonna break my fall there's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground